Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on gap filling, when government and governing institutions fail. We're talking with community leaders about how nonprofit and advocacy organizations and local grassroots groups are doing the work for community when the government can't or won't. If you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind-the-scenes content about each episode, you can head on over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. You sure can. And you can get some great behind-the-scenes for this episode. We took some pictures. Yeah. <laughs> we were so excited, though. This was a great episode because it really combined, I think, the uh, our two loves. You know, yes, my, very true my uh true love of social welfare and uh and, and your true love of of philanthropy and, and and grassroots you know organizations so it was a lot of fun to to film this episode it was it, it was fantastic and I'll, I'll be honest that where my head went afterwards probably is a little bit on the wonky side but bear with me listeners because the episode is worth it but one of the things that happens in this our conversation was a redefinition or a refinement of a lot of different concepts, right? So, and, and kind of bringing them together and synthesizing them and, and thinking about them as, as part of a bigger whole. And, and I love that we're having it on the Growing Democracy podcast, right? So we're talking about, we're talking about philanthropy and there's kind of these ideas about philanthropy as just being old, white, wealthy men, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers of the world say, right. And kind of interrogating that and saying, no, philanthropy means love of humanity. And it means the giving of your time, talent, and treasures for that purpose. Right. So inherent in that is that anyone can give of their time, talent, and treasures. Anyone can show their love for humanity. Um, And you do that through some form of kind of, individuals within community action, right? Like, so there's all these different layers in terms of how philanthropy then becomes a part of civic engagement. It challenges our ways of thinking about power and privilege and kind of dissecting those. And then in the conversation, I think we even kind of tackle those ideas and and, and how kind of I suppose using the terminology of the the philanthropic industrial complex. (laughs) So going back to that kind of the realness of and trueness of the, the structures that kind of build philanthropic institutions, not philanthropy as a concept and a practice, but as the institutions and how power is kind of understood and, and challenged in different places. I don't know. For me, there, there's so much. I could just ramble on forever about this topic. <laughs> I agree. It was a great episode. And I, I, a couple other themes I think that our listeners will really uh, like are, are theme, themes of listening, radical listening, oh, right? Yeah. And radical listening as a tool for right, rebuilding trust, but also that, you know, trust is a two-way street. And, mm-hmm. You know, foundations and 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 philanthropic, uh, you know, organizations don't trust the folks in the community that that trust isn't going to be earned on their mm-hmm. end either. 
Uh, and, and, and it's so important to have it going both ways. And so I just, I really took a lot from this episode. I think that our listeners are really going to like it. And uh, here we go. Dr. Rasan Harris is CEO of the Citizens Committee for New York. Harris has more than 20 years of experience leading nonprofits and international grant making, partnering with communities to make local investments and promote community improvement. He's a transformative leader and role model who's been a New York City public school teacher, board member of various Harlem-based organizations, devoted Big Brothers Big Sister mentor, and Peace Corps environmental education volunteer in South America. He received his doctorate in public and urban policy from the New School, where his dissertation was on understanding how socioeconomic diversity in the African-American community affects their philanthropic interests. He holds, uh, he also holds a master's in management and high school science education from New York University and Columbia, respectively, and a bachelor's of art from Princeton. It's so exciting to have you with us, Dr. Harris. I have no idea who you're talking about. I mean, that sounds like a really fantastic <laughs> person that's done a lot of stuff, um, but it's great to be here. Thank you. Actually, before we get started, I want to ask you, um, would you prefer to be called Dr. Harris or Rasan? I, can, I love being called Rasan, but I love the fact that you opened with Dr. Harris at the beginning. My mom, you know, basically like bled and toiled so that her son could be a doctor. My, my brother's a real doctor. He's a pediatrician, but you know, I, I know I'm, I'm here too. I can use it. Sometimes. Rasan works, but thank yeah. you doctors. You guys are great. I just want to thank I mean, you in, in the beginning. I just want to say, you know, PhDs were the first doctors. Medical doctors yes. came later. So yes. are they the real doctors, right? Cousin Alex, are you really the real doctor? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. The ones that help people. <laughs> Absolutely. You need thought. No, 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 no. We need thought mm-hmm. leadership yes. to lead the world. This is a complex world that's socially constructed by all these ideas. We need ideas that guide the way. Exactly. I love it. So now, now that Ashley has gotten out of the way of awkwardly reading your bio to you, <laughs> tell uh, you, we would love you to tell us and our listeners about yourself. Well, thank you so much uh, for inviting me. I am a boundary spanner in basic, simple terms. I was privileged enough to grow up uh, with certain aspects of privilege. You know, I'll call it male privilege, zip code privilege where I was born, um, certain aspects of the struggle. You know, I was born from formerly enslaved people. Uh, that's where I come up from, you know, came through you know, across the Atlantic, through Charleston, and, you know, I am the basically my ancestors' wildest dreams. Uh, So I am able to connect from the streets to the suites and hopefully do it for good. And I think that's me in a nutshell. Fantastic. So you are also the CEO of the Citizens Committee for New York. And the organization started in 1975 with the mission to help New Yorkers, especially those in low-income neighborhoods, um, come together and try to improve life in in neighborhoods. So I have kind of have two questions. One, there was a lot going on in 1975 New York, and I would love to hear the history there. And two, how does your organization fulfill that mission of kind of reaching low-income people where they're at and, and fulfilling your mission? 
Such a loaded question. And um, 1975, austerity politics became uh, a thing nationally. And Ford said to New York City, you know, drop dead. We're not doing it because we're doing this austerity thing. And that had ripple effects on things as simple as garbage being picked up on the services that people can get and a bunch of regular New Yorkers that weren't so regular because they were, you know, from a privileged class, but they weren't elected officials. They said, we are coming together and we are going to roll up our sleeves. And there's a great picture of our founders rolling up their sleeves and pitching in to help New York City. Someone's not coming from the hills to save us. We're here and we're going to do it and we're going to save ourselves because, you know, we the people. Uh, So fast forward 45 years, you know, they did help a lot of uh, what we would call communities that don't have regular access to opportunity. Um, I'm trying to use like uh, not deficit language, so to speak, asset-based language. Uh, And they end up, doing a search for a new CEO. And I just happened to be the first person of color to run this organization, first black man to run this organization for 45 years. So it shows a little bit of, even though they're toiling in the work of tons of communities of color, uh, they're, you know, being able to incorporate it from the, the top, the CEO level hadn't been actualized just yet until I came along. And my first day was March 16th, 2020. You get the booby prize. Uh, So I start the first day that New York City Public Schools was officially shut down. My daughter, who you might hear in the background, was home while, you know, schooling from home while I was first CEOing from home and trying to create culture for this organization. But I love even thinking about that imagery because I'm going through what the more privileged New Yorkers were going through, which was, you know, you had a job that you can work from home and you had to, you know, work it out and do what you could to make it happen for your family and for your community. And so I wasn't doing it from afar. I was in the struggle in my house in Harlem in uh, my, my child who went to public school. And so the struggles of the pandemic were my struggles. And it was an opportunity for us to put myself in the position of the everyday New Yorker and figure out how we are going to be the ones that are going to solve the problems and not wait for someone to come from the hills to solve us. Simply put, though, because that's a lot of words, We provide micro grants, small grants to local level leaders to do work to improve their community. And I like to simply say that we are democratizing civic engagement. We're democratizing access to leadership resources. We're democratizing who can be at the table to make a difference in their neighborhood. And so that's what attracted me to the job. And then the ability to use my analytical doctoral mind to do the data analysis of where disparities exist was kind of the cherry on top to get it done. Now, can you walk us through a little bit about the just massive survey that Citizens uh, NYC undertook to help elected officials and, you know, the philanthropic organizations in general better understand kind of the needs of the community, especially during the pandemic, but just at all, and and kind of what insights did the survey provide? I mean, I, I, I it also I guess boggles my mind a little bit that you know an organization whose work uh, largely impacts communities of color 
was uh, was engaged for so long in a management approach that was led by white people that didn't know <laughs> what right what those communities are going through. I mean, I, and of course, my mind jumps to it's like putting the fox in charge of the hen house, you know. I, and then maybe that's a bad example. I'm probably getting lots of emails for this. But right, it, so so, what is it that that survey was kind of able to do for folks? Uh, maybe in terms of like waking up those that were at higher levels to see that maybe the things on the ground are different than what they assumed that they are. So I want to address the the last thing that you said first. So we all live in the yellow submarine. No, we all live <laughs> in. Uh, constructs and systems that had winners that were picked and losers. There's power. There's those that were on top and those that were, you know, on the bottom, just because of the way we we're positionally situated with one another. And so therefore that creates interesting dynamics, even when people want to do right. And so I'll give an example you know, I'm cisgender, male, heterosexual. And so there's privilege that's all wrapped up in that. That even if I'm trying to be a good ally to women or to the LGBTQ community, there are going to be places where I have missteps. So I, you know, do not want to make perfect the enemy the good uh, in regards to saying like only certain types of people can do the work. And To your point, though, if we don't have the humility, and this is pivoting into the first part of your question, to do active listening, like aggressive, I'll call it radical listening, then you're going to miss the point. And so to my example, you know, if I'm going to be, you know, a feminist male, I got to really find ways to not mansplain and shut up. And if I say something that's wrong, I hurt someone's feelings, figure out how to to, 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 to rectify it in ways, not from a place of shame, but in a place of allyship and co-conspiratorship um, that I think is, is needed to get stuff done. So I was really excited, you know, that the board intentionally, you know, wanted someone that was a boundary spanner, intentionally wanted someone who had uh, that kind of analysis, you know, I love my rich friends and, you know, I love, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I love my you know poor friends and relatives you know you know really keeping it real like I have family members that are even like a family member now that I'm thinking about you know that's incarcerated right so you just gotta really try to find ways to be in touch with people's humanity data has a way to really tell stories about you know people's realities and gives you a chance to be intentional and strategic in your approach so. You know, you can call me Rasan, but this is when Dr. Harris came in uh, <laughs> and he was like, hey, we're going to do a survey. And I was like, amazing. If y'all don't get demographic information in it, this is not good. So we got to get the demographics in there and we need to really be able to analyze this based off of um, where people are and how they experience the pandemic. And, you know, at the same time in the New York City press, you know, there were some local politicians that were complaining that the data wasn't being broken out by by race and ethnicity. And voila, when we did black and brown people dying two to three times the rate of white folks. So, you know, you know, we all COVID is equal opportunity killer, but it's pretty good in certain communities more than others 
And that goes back to the systems of like lack of opportunity that existed before that made it an even more pernicious killer in certain communities than others. To that, I mean, to that point, it's one of those places where, I mean, so to maybe to the first point that you were making, Casey and I are two white women, we've referenced this on the podcast previously, who engage in conversations around race and social justice all the you time. Are, you <laughs> are, you <laughs> are. Our listeners can't see us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then like that's a really I, I, so it's something that we can we're regularly reflecting on and toiling with and thinking about the evolution of the project and what that means um so i appreciate you saying what you said it, it, so but i'm actually going to pivot momentarily unless we want to stay on this conversation around um your current work um but my pivot is to focus a little bit more on you <laughs> oh my you. So you have a long history of civic engagement. I guess it's not completely disconnected to the work you're doing, but um, so I mean, you've been a high school teacher. Um, you've worked in philanthropy and foundations in your current position in uh, at Citizens NYC. So you have a lot of different vantage points through which you have kind of defined uh, and refined uh, your own definition for what civic engagement is. So I want to ask you what. How do you define civic and political engagement and what does it mean to you? To me, civic engagement simply is knowing the issues that affect your daily life and those around you and actively making some decisions and actions to impact it. So you can be civically engaged by voting. You can be civically engaged by uh, educating others around you on an issue. You can be civically engaged by you know, getting a broom and sweeping up your local community. You can be civically engaged by going to an older adult's house and knocking on the door, making sure they're doing okay in the midst of COVID. You can be civically engaged by having a big brother's, big sister's mentee, because I think it all takes it's a little chunk out of the bigger problems that society has of like loneliness and being able to provide for yourself or figuring out how we're going to get to unity by taking all those different actions. My career personally, a lot of folks of color and or immigrants, you know, your parents want, I'm not an immigrant, but, you know, their parents are like, be a doctor, a lawyer, because that sounds like that's good and and that's, you know, respectable and that's great. To a certain extent, I would have wished this, like, you need to go into finance because you need to make all the money because when you make all the money, then you can help influence all the decisions. But uh, maybe get around to that again. So when I graduated Princeton, I had already done everything. I think I'd even taken my MCAT. I had everything except like filled out my applications when I went away. And when I was in the Peace Corps, uh, I really wanted to live in a different culture. I wanted to get to know the world from a different vantage point. I wanted to learn Spanish fluently because I was sick of the like, Yo, Hablo that I was doing for, since middle school, like it's like get get it done with, like live out there. You know, you can't go to the bathroom, you can't eat, you can't pay your rent unless you speak the damn language. So, like, it sure shut me right. You know, when I got back from the Peace Corps, I think one of the things was, you know, connecting with humanity and giving a, a chance to like really sit in someone's like living room all afternoon. You went over there to see if they're going to help you do like a recycling program on Tuesday, but. You know, in order to convince them, you had to really connect with them on a human level to get them to hang out with you. So you're drinking 
mate, which is like leaf, uh, loose leaf tea in a gourd, sipping it through a straw, like mate all afternoon. And then been there all afternoon. Then they invite you to stay for the, you know, the, the, the barbecue was like, you know, carne asada and, you know, you're just loving life. Um, but like spending time with people and doing, creating those relationships and creating community in particular, bringing race into this. So Uruguay is like very white Hispanic for the most part, like all the indigenous folks that I would have mixed with were gone. Don't talk about that history. Um, and there weren't like a lot of Afro Latinos. There's still small Afro Latino population that was like in the, the capital, but not much. So when they saw me in town, I stuck out like a chocolate chip in the middle of a bowl of milk. And, um, so that created all these really interesting dynamics and talking about privilege and understanding the world, you know, they experienced me one way when they saw me because they thought I was Brazilian first and foremost, stereotypically. And then when they heard me open my mouth and they realized I was American. And so like, they just didn't know what to do with me. And like, you could see the whiplashing of where their minds went, you know, in all that conversation. But me being different, but still being able to connect with them in that community and them embracing me was amazing. Bringing my big brother's big sister's mentee in. He's like a son. When he turned 21, I was just about to get this job at Citizens Committee. My wife couldn't take off from her job. So I took him down to Uruguay for his 21st birthday. And him coming back and seeing that and seeing the love I was still getting almost 25 years later from being down there just showed like how when you connect with people on a human level that you can stay connected and like over, over oceans and over time. And so that has really influenced, I think my career, like just connecting with people, not necessarily stitching them up, not necessarily, you know, having to do the technical aspects of connecting with them, but finding ways to listen uh, and finding ways to help make their lives better. In other ways is like what's guided my winding path from being a teacher to going to nonprofit management to, giving away other people's money, which is a lot of fun. If you can, you can, if it's a good gig, if you can get it. And then like ultimately just trying to figure out how I can be a boundary spanner from all the different places that I've been. You know, I've lived in places where indoor plumbing wasn't guaranteed. That's not necessarily Uruguay because Uruguay is pretty like middle class. I've been in places where I don't speak the language. I've been in places where I've been in a minority. I've been in communities where I'm in the majority when I go to my black church and um, just being able to hopefully be empathetic and understand different points of view and bring that to my work is where I go. And that's where getting access to wealth comes in. If I can be a boundary spanner that brings people who are wealthier and because of their wealth can influence a lever of change that I want to make sure they have the best information and get folks to the table with them as opposed to not having them at the table. Because if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And uh, that's what I want to solve as much as possible. Yeah, I, I want to dig a little bit more, right? Because so you spent time in Peace Corps as an environmental education volunteer. And so that was your your time in South America. I mean, did, did you make multiple trips there? How did that work influence your civic engagement back in the United States? I mean, I, I those, you know, communities, I do have you know, certain amounts of a similarity. <laughs> and yet I would think also that, right, there's a lot of heterogeneity in, 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 uh, in, in those two different places. So how did that kind of inform the work that you're doing here? Yeah, I think just really being intentional about 
how you're showing up and how you listen. Uh, that's number one. Number two, if you're always worried about making a mistake, I mean, you're not you're not playing the game. Like literally, if you do everything perfectly, you're not trying. Because <laughs> trying means that you fail or do something wrong, right? Like you got to push your 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 ability to the limit to be able to go as far as you can go. And so I say that with Spanish. So if I wouldn't speak because I didn't think I had the words for it, then I had to push through it. So it taught me how to push through, you know, not all, you know, this is going to surprise you, but not all Hispanics are alike. They're very different communities. They're like tons of different countries. It's crazy. Um, and in and, and that part of the world. I wish uh, people could see our non-verbals in this moment. <laughs> I'm just going to there. It's like, oh, mind blown. Mind blown me. Yeah. Emoji. No, because like, for example, in Uruguay, the, the Y or double L sound was a J. So it was like a hard. So yo hablo, you know, como te llamas? And like, I come up back to the States talking like that. And they're looking at me like, what's the matter with you? Because they're used to like Caribbean Spanish, right? And, and it influenced my civic engagement directly because my first teaching job was as a bilingual uh, science teacher in Washington Heights. So I was coming up there, talking to a bunch of Dominican kids that were like basically eating my lunch and beating me up like emotionally every day. But like, I loved being in that struggle with them because it taught me so much. It taught me humility. And it also taught me empathy because, you know, it's the stories like the night before Halloween, like they call it mischief night. And like folks were worried about slashings happening for of kids and families coming to school. And so like on Halloween, yeah, before Halloween, like the school was like a ghost town because a lot of parents would send their kids to school. So that gave me like, the kids were beating up on me emotionally, but then I also saw how they're getting beat up emotionally every day, like worried about like safety, whether it's rumors or not, worried about food security, economic security and all those things. And then I have the pleasure of marrying into an Afro-Latino, Afro-Cuban family. So my wife's family, my both both of their, her parents were born in Cuba. So uh, this guess being able to speak Spanish has served me well on like multiple levels. Um, <laughs> being able to, to you know, when my in-laws like they they can't even like they love me because I, I love the food and I can speak the language. And so you know, so it's helped me just to connect with people on a human level. And again really lean into empathy because it's given me different tools to be empathetic. I can listen in different languages. I can listen to different ears. I can, you know, li- listen for different cues and even understand differences of the way people show up culturally. Um, because, you know, when you're different cultures, sometimes people come at you differently and, uh, um, you got to have a certain kind of ears and patience to really hear what people are saying because when they're communicating to you, even in the words that you understand, but it's delivered differently and it means something different. You have to have that kind of intention to understand what they're communicating. And the last thing I'll say to it is being away helped me understand, you know, we talk about the levels of privilege and, you know, folks get really upset. Like I'm not privileged. And that's like, this the, like, I mean, no, like breathe. It's okay. We all, to a certain extent, have a certain amount of privilege, um, and, and it's situational. 
And it's not like your privilege doesn't always win in every situation. Sometimes you'll be the privileged, sometimes you'll be the oppressed, but recognizing what conversation we're having and, and how your privilege shows up is important. And I say that because when I was in Uruguay, I would I was on the town that was right across the river from Buenos Aires in Argentina. So big city life, it was amazing. I had zero dollars, but like being American, like got me into like, clubs or whatever that I had no business getting into, like my Peace Corps whole shirt on, <laughs> holy shirt, holy pants, probably holes in the shoes too, but they would let me in because I like American privilege. But then I'd get into conversations with folks and they would also talk about like how American imperialism through capitalism sometimes like has negatively affected their lives and what happens in their spaces. And that gave me a humility to listen to those stories and try to understand. Yeah. I mean, my, my feeling is that when people hear privilege, they think that that means that they've had an easy life as opposed to that. All it means is that there is some part of your identity, either that you right uh, acknowledge explicitly or, or that others see about you that as opposed to the counterfactual of something else means that you don't have that same barrier that someone else has. It's that, I mean, I literally think, privilege has people don't really understand what it means like um it makes me think of the uh the princess bride when andre the giant <laughs> and mandy patinkin you know the guy that said inconceivable inconceivable yes, it's like yeah, i yeah. don't think you know what that word means i think we have that problem with privilege too that folks think like privilege means that you know that every door is open to them yeah. and that that all of a sudden they got a big bag of cash. Cause like when folks tell me like, I grew up poor, I don't have privilege. I was like, that's just not the same yeah. conversation. We're talking apples and oranges yep. and folks need to understand. Cause like, I get it. Like we're going through right now with the, the, the trial for Derek Chauvin. Right. And so that reminds you when George Floyd was murdered in front of the whole world to see, like there's certain aspects of being a black man. That's like, there's no privilege involved in that. But at the same time, there is a lot of male privilege I got. And it's at the same time, I don't know if you're watching Nas X. He did this very <laughs> explosive video yeah, yeah. that has like, you know, basically his LGBTQ identity on Front Street and people are losing their minds. So again, black man, but because he's coming from, you know, an LGBTQ perspective, like that privilege, you know, mm-hmm. is like completely X'd out, but then you got male privilege because men are making more than women on average, you know, across the board. So it's 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 calculus. It's not addition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not that easy. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate about the way that you were talking about it is recognizing that these 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 terms, power, privilege, oppression, which I think are really powerful and shouldn't be erased. Right? I don't think we get rid of them because they're challenging to deal with, but putting them in the context of humility and empathy and person-to-person interpersonal relationships, I think is powerful. Um, So kind of situating that conversation, I think, is a really interesting way to think about it. I don't know if that was what your intention was, but that was part of what I was hearing you say. (laughs) No, yes, it was my intention, but it's also like it doesn't make great and easy, like, wholesale politics right yeah that's for sure you know what i'm saying like <laughs> yeah. put that on a bumper sticker like no i can't do that <laughs> i'm sorry i'm gonna need the entire back half of a you know, exactly. to explain to you that's my approach this term so, is complicated and exactly. also <laughs> 
But yeah. privilege, it's complicated. That's the bumper <laughs> sticker, right? But but the thing is, like, how do you win the culture wars in that kind of space? And, you know, again, not trying to, you know, demonize or pick sides, so to speak. But, you know, you pick on things that viscerally get people to react. And visceral reactions don't necessarily have the complexity of situations. And therefore, you have folks debating Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head as opposed to like how many hundreds of thousands of people are dying from COVID, right? And or like who can feed themselves or not. And um, I think it's mass distraction um, that's intentional. And I think we got to find ways, you know, we, the collectively as the, you know, the human endeavor, we need to find ways to capture hearts and minds because you go further together and figuring out folks that can get that done is that's, for me, that's what's up. So that's, thank you. (laughs) I usually like try to have these really witty, thoughtful responses, but simply thank you. Thank you for saying that. I have a, I do have a question though for you and, and I, it's related, but it kind of brings us back to an earlier conversation around philanthropy. And so maybe it's situating the same conversation within the philanthropic space. So this series in particular that this uh, podcast will be a part of is we refer to it as filling the gaps. And we talk about filling the gaps that government can't or won't provide services, programs, resources that government can't or won't provide. There are all sorts of reasons for the can't or the won't. But one of the things that you're, you've been engaged with is kind of this philanthropical side, right? The, the, the philanthropy's role. And it's often kind of held up as this space of filling that gap, right? So people with wealth fill the gap, meet the needs, it's it, it, to to address social problems, right? So, so from your perspective, what is the space in which philanthropic organizations can or should engage in social welfare work? And you know that is typically assigned to government. Yes, what is government like? Whose responsibility is is it? Like, what's love got to do with it? All of that, right? I personally believe that institutions and organizations and the way we understand the world are put together so that we can understand it. But if you really break down stuff to its most simplest essence, simply put, we should make sure that all folks are taken care of, that all folks feel safe, that all folks have an opportunity to feel like they live a life of purpose and feel good about themselves. Now, of course, they're going to be bad actors. And of course, they're going to be folks that are lazy, you know. But ultimately, you know, I think, this is what I believe, that most folks don't want to, like, roam the earth not feeling good about themselves. And ultimately, living a life that you're, you know, not doing your best or doing something that you feel have purpose, like, will ultimately eat at your soul and, turn you and, you know, this just doesn't end well for you. So the human endeavor outside of the institutional arrangement should hopefully be one in which we try to give people the most resources that they need. So I don't mind that 
government does the most it can. And there's some welfare, there are tons of welfare states that are much more generous than the United States welfare state is. All of them? Exactly. Right. And so that means like we hate people and we love, but I mean, whatever. But given that, I think you need folks to come together as in organizations that might be corporations, organizations that are nonprofit organizations and individuals that build a culture of care that might be able to influence, you know, the larger culture that makes ourselves organized differently in our government. And so I know should people come in and fill in the gaps that, you know, some of us might feel government should do. I mean, sure. Cause I think if it happens long enough and then folks get organized, they can make a difference. And it has to be more than the whole, let them eat cake. I'm just going to bring you a Turkey on Thanksgiving type of a philanthropy, because that's more like, you know, you're giving a person a fish, but like literally breaking the fishing rod so that they can't fish on their own. You got to create systems that you can like, hopefully, you know, teach them how to fish so they can eat forever. And that takes systems reform and that takes, you know, organizing and that takes folks coming together. And so I'm here for that. I'm definitely here for not necessarily picking winners and losers, but, you know, picking humanity over like radical individualism that tears us apart because you can't build the wall or an island that's far enough or high enough that you're not going to be affected. You know, we're all on the same earth going back into my Peace Corps environmental days. Like, you know, if the whole earth burns up, there's nowhere you can go to hide. So we're, we're all inextricably linked and we got to figure out ways so that, you know, at least all of us can have some level of life. So and now I kind of want to push you on something uh, that's related to this. And, and I'll be fully open Right. My area of expertise is social welfare. And so I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder when I think about philanthropy and that there are so many politicians and even political platforms that act like, well, government shouldn't do it. You know, here's some bootstraps. And also, you know, the church can help if you need it. And so that I do not believe in bootstraps. I I do not believe bootstraps. It's like my people. The bootstraps they had, they would left them in Africa and then they came over here and like, you can build me some bootstraps. And then like 400 years later, they're going to be like, oh, maybe here's some boots. Can you pull yourself up from the strap? No, no, I don't believe in the bootstrap. Uh, So something, there has been a resurgent. I mean, this kind of recent surge in calls to support, right, Black-owned businesses after kind of a new found recognition about the histories of uh, the history of Black Wall Street. And uh, I mean, really about how, you know, what white communities burned it down. They, they destroyed a community uh, because this community was successful and because they were Black. Um, part of this resurgence is also kind of the creation of new banks that are built kind of explicitly for Black and Latinx customers, with the idea being that right, Black communities have historically been targeted by banks engaging in bad behavior. And, you know, really, like during the housing crisis, we could see how that manifested itself in that Black customers were much more likely to end up in, with, you know, bad mortgages that they ended up having their, their home foreclosed on. So I guess my my question for you is, what are your thoughts about the utility of kind of working within the system of capitalism to, you know, create a a different kind of space in which, uh, you know, communities of color can, can access capital uh, for, for other purposes. 
Um, so one of my um, my dissertation chair, uh, my committee chair was Derek Hamilton, and Derek Hamilton is economic advisor for Bernie Sanders. And then once the you know the the ticket became formulated, you know provided some advice to uh, Biden and the, the, their team. And he really just talks about the wealth gap. So you know, I you know, I don't know if it will make the podcast when talking about bootstraps and not having boots, like that's, that's the story, right? You know, <laughs> you know, let's talk to me about the Fair ha- Housing Act and like who got access to loans. Like talk to me about like when black businesses and we had all these communities and, you know, disaffected and fearful lied to white folks go in and just destroy it because they're angry at seeing black folks doing well. Um, those are the stories of like, well, where do you think the wealth went? It, well, it burnt up over there and, and that's where the wealth went. And so there's a wealth gap that is like egregious and people who are ahistorical say, Hey, look, son, you make as much as I do. So what's going on? I was like, but wh- how many houses are in my family that, you know, I can take a loan out on to like help build my business or send my child to college or do some economic smoothing in rough times. Oh, that's right, because my family couldn't own the houses or the redlining. You know, listen, you know, look at Race to Power of Illusion, you know, California Newsreel, Google it, look it up. They'll, they'll tell you the whole story. So I think with that acknowledged that government can provide some role of providing some, I guess, a framework for not necessarily, comp- I was going to say writing some wrongs, but then some folks are like, but government picking winners that's tough and like but like they haven't always done that i know i know but when you talk about black folks you got to be careful because <laughs> you can't say it out now you gotta ease into that conversation just but government can f- provide a framework that is implementable hopefully that has the buy-in because the voters put the politicians in place that lead to legislation to make it go so there's some collectiveness in it and then intentional practices. That's really what it is. And Dark Hamilton taught me that is if you're going to try to make a one size fit all solution, but not recognizing that people aren't starting from the same starting point, then like, it's not going to work. And so, you know, and we're all again in the same boat. So if there's a hole in the boat, just because the black folks and the brown folks and the women might be at the bottom of the boat, like the boat, if there's a hole in it, it's going to go down and eventually everybody goes down with it. So it's in our own best interest to make sure that everybody has access to opportunity, healthy economies, make healthy social security, you know, uh, educated you know, population makes educated workforce so that communities can thrive. So I think the work of quote unquote writing wrongs of the past is like in everyone's best interest, because if you literally just have a whole part of your squad, we're playing basketball that you just can't pass the basketball over there because it's going to like have it go out of bounds or dribble it off their foot. Like, you know, your team is going to lose. You want everybody on the team to be able to do well enough so you can give your best effort. And, you know, in my analogy, certain communities have been left, you know, not even taught how to play, but are on the court because they set up this game that's called capitalism and that's the way it could go. So if it's going to be strong, I think everybody has to be able to play for it to work because all the systems need, I think, everybody actively engaged for it to work. Now, you've 
also got just a, a really long history uh, of experience concerning foundations and grant making. Can you discuss with us kind of these efforts that are being made to increase grants to organizations that are really kind of explicitly looking to strengthen communities of color? I am so happy that conversations that have been happening for decades, literally, are kind of coming to fruition right now because there was the Greenlining Institute still around. They did this whole report about greenlining. I was like, what are you talking about greenlining? Well, it's talking about the way philanthropic dollars have flowed. And if you take data on who were the leaders of the organization, who was on the board, you'll find out that people of color-led organizations weren't benefiting in the same way that white-led organizations in philanthropy over the years. And so Green Lining Institute did that back in like around the millennium. So like 2003, four, five-ish, because when I was, you know, at the Atlantic Philanthropies, you know, I made, I was made aware of that report. There was a movement of program officers and other folks working within philanthropy that, you know, started this whole conversation that back then was diversity and philanthropy conversation. And, and it's just really important. Yes. You know, Boys and Girls Club, you know, even Big Brothers, Big Sisters, love lovely institutions, you know, that I've participated in. But if you look at who's run it and who's been on the board, they're not necessarily, you know, folks from the, you know, the communities, black and brown folks. But the beneficiaries by and large are black and brown people. And so it's a little bit of a difficult conversation to have with someone. And it goes back to something that we were talking about earlier, like who has the right to do good? What like what does that endeavor look like? Can it be made better if it's more inclusive? Um, they're all questions that, you know, have ramifications for like how the work gets done. And power dynamics come into it because, you know, how the money was made for philanthropy in the first place uh, is, a. I mean, whew, like... <laughs> You want to peel back the layers of that onion? See what the, <laughs> let me see what's behind that drywall. Let's see, what, let's see how the foundation is. I mean, some of that stuff is really rotten and stinky. Um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we have to tear down the whole house. But, I mean, we're going to have to do some real important remodeling um, if we want to right some of the wrongs that were done um, for us to get here. And I think, you know, there are a lot of great folks that are working in philanthropy to try to um, be strategic and intentional about doing that. And one of the things too, you know, 5% is like the standard that you have to give out based off of the IRS, the 95% that's in the corpus of the endowments that's kind of just rolling over, you know, who's managing it or money managers of color doing that. What kind of vendors are you hiring? Like, how can you make sure that the money um, is benefiting communities in multiple ways? So you think about, inclusive hiring practices of vendors and, you know, socially conscious and socially aware investment portfolios. Um, that's also a huge thing. So now, boom, COVID, and you see the disparities, boom, you know, George Floyd's murder. You know, now all those conversations, I think, are really coming crystal clear to folks because it was like definitely on the side, but happening in the fringes. But now I think it's much more in the fore. So 
I'm going to go back to Citizens NYC. We love to jump all over the place. It's like, no, I love, I know, I love this conversation. Like, I didn't know it was going to go there. Like, you're, I feel like I'm on a therapist couch for fine. Why do you exist? Who are you? Yeah. Were you hugged when you were a baby? Like, we're going to start with the organization. We're going to dig real deep into a whole bunch of things you weren't quite prepared for. And then we're going to go back to the organization. Bookends. Yeah, exactly. It's a good narrative. So Citizens NYC tries to eliminate the assumption, eliminate assumptions about communities, right? So you earlier were talking about kind of using asset-based language, challenging us to think about kind of ways in which these neighborhoods are thriving and, and, and to gather direct information from the people who are most affected by things that are happening in their daily lives, right? Whether that's in their neighborhoods, in their city, in their communities. How do you go about doing that work? Mm. The work really has to be for me, because I'm Dr. Harris again, grounded in getting data. It was said to me before I came to the organization that they really try to listen to the grantee partners and communities before they give out the grants. And, you know, my question was, how do you do that at scale? And I think the way you do that at scale is you really have to survey folks. You really have to pay attention what's happening in news, not just major big news outlets, but local community neighborhood blogs and newsletters. Go to community board meetings, become part of coalitions. And I think if you're steeped in what's happening in that, you have different data points. Some of them are quantitative and some of them are qualitative, but a mixed method approach. But you can kind of understand what the work is about. And for me, it's so important to really figure out, like a great researcher, like how are you approaching the question and who are you? And like, what's the lens that you have that's going to impact the way that you're analyzing this data? And I think the same thing with community work, because I think different people see what's happening in even... Look at New York City right now. Some people say, oh, New York City is being completely abandoned. But it really depends on what neighborhood you're in, right? Some folks are like, I'm looking around and everybody who's in my neighborhood is here except for the folks that died, right? Because like they didn't have, I mean, and that's morbid, but that's real because I was in a real meeting of some of our grantee partners that were given a you know, what we call like a love your block grant to help them get access to some city services to help them like sanitation comes and pulls out your trash and you get some money to implement a project, whether it's planting flowers, trees, or beautification. And the story is about, oh yeah, some of my neighbors moved out or the, the neighbors that were supposed to be part of the initiative that just passed away because of COVID. And so you need to go into those spaces understand like their reality. So these people aren't going anywhere. So New York City isn't abandoned to them. It might be a new opportunity for them to reclaim more of the city that they couldn't access before because they're being priced out or they're being overlooked. Or if you take the time to listen to them the way that others weren't, then you bring them to the table so that they can be part of the rebuild as opposed to being built around them and them trying to figure out how they uh, take a part of it. So I think the work is really steeped in Radical listening, recognizing how your listening ears are going to affect what you're hearing. A group endeavor that multiple people are understanding or, or 
transmitting what they're understanding, what they're hearing so that you can come to collective decisions. And this is the biggest thing for me. Um, Responsible philanthropy in a crisis is finding trusted leaders, giving them the resources, getting out their way, come back to them and checking with them about like what they've done with the money and how's it going not coming in as if you're coming in as like the, I guess the teacher with the ruler to smack their hand and they got the arithmetic wrong, but really just saying like, I'm a partner in this with you. And just as long as they're not buying a Ferrari or a BMW with the money, but like really doing something that's additive community, just like keep going with them. Like the worst thing, like imagine like in, uh, in uh, what Superstorm Sandy and when it hit New York City, like flooding, you know, leveled certain communities, like, um, could you, you know, write me a proposal for how I should get you funding so you can rebuild your community? I'm like, I'm standing in a foot of water in my basement right now. Could you, could you please, uh, just, uh, if you trust me, help, help a brother out. And then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll report exactly what I've done, but can we make it more narrative and make it more of a partnership as opposed to you lording over me for, you know, every nail and every, you know, four by four that we're using to like reconstruct. I think you need to trust leaders and be in conversation with them as opposed to, you know, lording over them so that they feel that they have to lie to you in order to keep getting money out of you. Because good people end up kind of, I mean, we've all done it, right? You know, someone's like judging you and you kind of clean something up so much so that like, they don't think that anything's wrong at all. But if they really gave you the space, they're like, this is what I did. What I really felt great about, but over here, I felt a little bit insecure about that. Could you help me? It can make what you report out on a lot better. And I think responsible philanthropy, responsible partnership is, you know, being able to listen and do that and provide people resources and the trust that they need to do the work. I mean, it occurs to me that, you know, I I've heard from a lot of people interested in giving and, and, and I'll hear things like, Oh, but what are they going to do with the money? As though like you, if you want to give the money, just give the money because somebody in their community knows what needs to be done, right? Oh, back to trust and empathy. Back to trust and empathy, right? <laughs> Human. I, I mean, I have to imagine that, you know, that in in some communities that you've had to go in and, and rebuild trust with those individuals for whom, uh, you know, people are trying to give services to because there's got to be a lack of trust between you know, organizations and the the communities that they want to serve. How do you do that when it feels like the the foundations that that are engaged in philanthropy don't have much trust in that process itself? Being authentic matters. I have stories, I'll, but I'll, I'll take you back to when I was teaching high school. So I go to my students one morning and they were talking about hearing, and this is back in the day, Hot 97 had Angie Martinez in the morning. And they said, Angie Martinez said, blah, 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 blah this morning. I was like, yeah. And when she said, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Mr. Harris, you listen to Hot 97? I'm like, what do you think I'm listening to in the morning? Because of the way I show up. And yes, I show up, you know, middle-class, bougie, in quotes, as some might say, uh, that they didn't see me as being one of them. And so when you show up in a community, you got to find a way to authentically show up as yourself. So I showed up bougie, but the commonality that we had was like, we both heard Angie Martinez in that morning and I let them know what I heard. And that moment was a trust building, like, huh, moment. So I think foundations need to like 
let folks know that they're listening to Hot 97 too. Uh, <laughs> and and the kids were like, oh, <laughs> now. So maybe we can start building some bridges. But, you know, go, taking that a little bit further, if you're a foundation, you never listen to Hot 97 and you're going into this community and they listen to Hot 97, then you're going to have some mismatches and values and, and you're going to have a longer, further bridge to cross to get to them. And so I think it's super duper important to show up authentically, but then also do your homework so that folks know that you respect them. Because if you show them that you understand them to the extent that you can, then then that's when grace and trust come in. Um, you don't get that if you, if you don't show up like that. Yeah. So two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we always ask this question of every person that's on the podcast. Do you have anything else you want to add? And, you know, any final words of wisdom for our listeners to take away from our conversation? Philanthropy is not something of the rich in dollars. It's those who are rich in spirit. So everyone has time, talent, and or treasure to give and figure out what of the three that you're willing to do uh, and why, what's in it for you. Number one, your soul just feels good when you're, you're in community. I mean, if... COVID has taught us anything else. Isolation sucks. Not being able to hug people sucks. Not, I mean, even, I mean, I know some introverts are like, kind of like, okay, it was kind of cool, but like, okay, enough now. So being connected is, is important, I think, for human, human endeavor. Uh, Otherwise I think we would organize ourselves the way we do. So, you know, find a way to give of your time, talent, or your treasure and get involved. Civic engagement is not necessarily an expert only type thing. Like we all can do it. And lastly, loving yourself and knowing yourself and doing the work of being quiet and being still and listening to yourself is such a great thing because you can hopefully show up with confidence when you're dealing with others. And then maybe as they show themselves too, that you won't be so scared or intimidated by it. And I think, you know, the route to unity, it really comes from knowing yourself first and, and, and coming to peace with yourself. And I think that is my prayer for society, our country, for New York City right now, that, um, that hopefully folks, you know, get past their fear, but really like look at themselves in a way and recognize, you know, that they're okay. And so that the other person across them can be okay too. And then if we're okay, then we can be okay together. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and with me as always is my co-host, Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association, as well as our patrons on Patreon. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the show, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, and swag designed by Donuts and Coffee, head over to patreon.com forward slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about filling the gaps.